We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. This is our final interview in our series exploring architecture competitions and if the process can help make projects better. Our guest in this episode is Jill Garner, who at the time of this recording was the Victorian Government Architect. Jill was also a founder of the architecture firm Garner Davis Architects, who design private homes as well as large-scale public projects. Jill has a unique perspective on architecture competitions, having taken part in them through her own practice and also through running large-scale architecture competitions for the Victorian State Government. In this interview, Jill shares how government use architecture competitions, design champions in government, how architecture practices take on major competitions, the culture of competitions in Australia and abroad, and what Jill went through when she ran the Future Homes competition. I'll now pass over to Cassia Ward, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Victoria. Let's jump in. Well, thanks again for taking the time to do this interview with us. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience with architecture competitions as part of your role with the Office of the Victorian Government Architect? Well, we see architectural competitions as a really valid procurement method, and it's one that is not terribly common and certainly not common. Well, I should qualify that. It's not common in Australia, and it's particularly uncommon in Victoria. If I was to look internationally, there are countries in the world that are absolutely tied. Their their best buildings, in fact, sometimes their everyday buildings are tied to the concept of competitions. So in a lot of countries, and I guess I could quote places like Belgium and Denmark, Switzerland, France and Germany, who all as an absolutely common procurement technique for both private and public work, run through a process of competition. And it's kind of embedded in their culture of accepting that design is a very important part of the built environment. So there's just a long, long history of competitions in some of those countries. It's one of those things I believe in Australia goes through a few cycles and you get a cycle of great positivity about the outcome of competitions or what competitions might achieve. And then you see it kind of falls off the radar a bit, procurement methods change, and particularly in the public arena, governments change and some governments seem to like competitions and some don't. So I think from the government architect's point of view, I think I'd find nationally that all the government architects' offices around Australia would be really, really supportive of the concept of design competitions because they take away the perhaps the potential to be swayed by knowing the firm, knowing what they do, being guaranteed that you perhaps taking less of a risk. All of those sorts of things play into the idea of whether a competition might be a good outcome for a particular project. But I suppose what we see is that government is a very big client of design and every building or place that's done for our community 
whether it's a railway station, a gallery, a creative piece of work, or even if it's a public park, something like that. They're actually community projects and they're designed for community benefit. So in lots of ways, getting the best design outcome is very much at the heart of those kind of projects. And if you are going to have a process that's led by design, then a competition is an amazingly good way of doing it because otherwise you are just working through a different system where you're trying your hardest to get a firm, you're kind of trying to inform them of the project, help them over the line and work towards the process. The thing that's always interesting about a competition is a really good brief has to be written. So the client has to work through that vision and the ambitions and the even the functional needs behind a project. And all of that has to be put down up front. And then you are pitching a design challenge to the profession. And if a project, or look, even if it's not judged blind, even if it's judged in terms of knowing who they are, it can be led by the best possible design outcome, which I think is great for the community because you end up with something that maybe is not dictated by cost or not dictated by perhaps just what you don't know what you don't know. So there's that challenge of test me, show me what's possible within the the realm of this project. And I think that's what competitions bring to the fore is that idea of someone being a little bit risky about their ideas and putting something in front of a judging panel that goes, oh, actually, there's something in this that is a bit left field, a bit quirky, or is really contemporary or is forward looking or whatever it is that the jury finds within it that they genuinely think this will be a great kind of outcome for the community in a public project. Yeah, that's a really great summary. <laughs> Thank you. When you say that the competitions are cyclical in their popularity, are there any key examples of a competition that really like spurred on popularity in war competitions after it or a competition that maybe like went the other way and kind of brought a lull in the, in the popularity of the competitions? I believe that because Australia's never really been in this committed atmosphere of supporting competitions, I probably couldn't point to one that's been a, an encouragement or one that's been doing the opposite and deterring a client from running a competition. I think there's great enthusiasm, you know, not necessarily in the community because we probably don't have a really literate design community. So probably I couldn't point to a project that's either encouraged or stopped the concept of a competition. Every now and then you get a major, major public project like, and I could use great examples like the Sydney Opera House in the late 50s. Or in Melbourne, there are some great examples too where projects have Flinders Street Station competition, the National Gallery competition is going on at the moment. Those projects, they're kind of no-brainers that they should be competitions because you're looking for an extraordinary outcome, maybe on a very special site, very special project for a city or a place. And you want to test the market, you know, what could we get? What vision might we get for this project? So they are fabulous ideas for competitions, those major projects. And I suspect the Sydney Opera House is a great example where all those years ago, 
you know, Australia ran this amazing competition for a great building and, you know, it hit political problems while it was trying to be turned into a real project. And so it's when it hits those political problems, our industry, the architectural industry gets a little upset about it because it feels like it's working against the concept of a design-led solution and being interfered with in some way. And they're really hard. So what sort of political problems? Well, I could actually, Federation Square is probably another example of that too. And you know, they I think they hit, and I probably shouldn't call them political problems because they're not quite that, but in fact, they're risk factors that are associated with it. So somebody in government needs to be a design champion. So there has to be someone who says, I really support this project and I'm going to get behind it and I'm going to back it. And I don't understand it. I don't understand the design necessarily. I've never seen a project like this before. And Federation Square in Melbourne is a great example of that. The premier of the day, I suspect had never seen a project like that. And to his credit, at the time he said, this has been chosen by an eminent jury and I'm going with it and I'm going to back it and I'm going to let it be rolled out and produced. And then it always, every competition in those sorts of environments are confronted with challenges in budget, challenges in the processes of getting regulatory approvals, all of those sorts of things. So I suppose that's what I mean by political challenges. So it's not that there's a fight about whether to do the project or not. It's just that degree of difficulty of navigating the process of rolling out a very important public facility is quite a difficult process, <laughs> no, matter, no matter how experienced you are, it's difficult. And sometimes linked with competitions, if the competition is won by an organization that's less skillful or less experienced in those processes, they can be really challenging for the designers unless there's a great deal of support within government or within the decision-making cohort to help grease the wheels and make sure that the project can actually be realized without losing the, the whole reason that that project won a competition. Because, you know, you can't just turn it into something else. It's won a competition because of what its vision is. And that at all costs, you've got to kind of hang on to that. Yeah, absolutely. And with architecture competitions, what uh, benefits does the architect or the design team get by participating in a competition structure? I think it's one of those crazy things that designers do. You never get paid for the work and the time and the effort and the blood, sweat and tears that you put into a competition entry. And an awful lot of organizations will look at the brief, look at the jury and look at the parameters and make a decision. Are we going to spend the time, energy, effort, headspace, money, all of those things that go towards realizing a competition. And what's embedded in a competition is a really exciting process for designers because in a way, designers spend their life thinking about solutions to problems, if you like, you know, if you call a brief, a problem of some sort. And we're all interested in the impact of the work we do on the city and the places that we live and we work and we occupy. And we're all a bit crazy sometimes and we don't mind working extraordinary hours to 
have a bit of a go at something. And I think, you know, historically there's just been something embedded in our profession about the camaraderie that exists, the focus. There's no client. I mean, interestingly, as a competition, you are not in client meetings. You don't, this is a failing and a positive in some ways because you don't have client feedback. You're just given quite a thorough brief and asked, can you interpret this? And you come, can you come up with some kind of exciting vision for this? So the arduous, perhaps, communications process is not there. And so it's a very, very exciting, enlightening and collaborative process in the competition phase because you're working with a bunch of other designers, of other experts, and you're all really invested in something that honestly you think is brilliant. You know, you're, you're part of a team and you really think you've nailed it and you're all working towards this very exciting proposition of trying to get a jury excited by what you're putting down. I think it's a process that's Maybe it's hard to know whether that exists in other types of professions, but it's something that has always been embedded within the architectural profession. And we're probably all crazy that we love doing it, (laughs) but it's very collegiate and fun. And a lot of people get a voice and it's a place for testing of ideas. It's often a place where organizations let their younger parts of the company throw ideas together and challenge the older parts or the more experienced parts of the company. So it's a testing field really for sometimes the younger members of an organization. And because of that, it's it's an exciting process to be involved with. Why do you think that organizations will often put their younger and staff forward for these sorts of briefs? It's probably because those that are very embedded in the realities of the day-to-day of keeping the company afloat, are very, very busy with construction, with other projects that are real, because competitions are a risk. And most, I mean, they should be a paid proposition. And I think one of the reasons they're so common in international examples is that they are always a paid option. And so, I do believe that there are some organizations that literally spend their life doing competitions, paid for that work, but don't ever win them. (laughs) But it kind of, it's a business in itself, you know, it's because it, and they're probably very cautious about how much time and effort they put into doing the competitions, but it can be seen, if you like, as a type of business in itself, this idea of responding to a paid brief. That is probably not realistic in Australia because there aren't enough competitions and also a lot of our competitions are not. Some of them have token prizes, some have real prizes. So, I guess you need to decide whether your organisation can support the resources in both time, money, staff, all of those important parts that it takes to get a competition entry done. Are you going to do it? Can you afford it? Is it going to send your organization into a financial spin? Or are you going to get into trouble with other projects, other more real projects by allowing some of your organization to concentrate on something that is not a certainty? So I think probably, you know, because I talked about the collegiality and the excitement of doing a competition, it's the time that's needed. You know, there's always a lot of overnights and things like that. There's some 24-hour bursts get put in. And I suspect most organizations 
put it out there to their team and say, anyone want to put their hand up to be exhausted in three months' time (laughs) because we might do a pitch for this. And so it would be quite often with the overview and the input of the more experienced players and those within the practice that have more experience and knowledge and who maybe can get to a solution a bit faster, but they are being challenged with contemporary thinking or younger thinking or enthusiastic thinking. So that's always why it's great to have part of the office that might bring that to the competition process. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure it's a huge opportunity in terms of like what a competition is and like thinking about what the future can be to have sort of like your youngest staff really sort of get a hold on what their future could be with sort of where they live, where they work. What would be, going back to what you were talking about with a token prize versus a real prize, what would be a token prize for a competition and what would be a, like a real prize for a competition, an architecture competition? From our point of view, we think it's wrong to ask architects to do any kind of conceptual work without being paid for it. And because really ideas are valuable, that is what we do. That's our intellectual property as design professionals. So I'm not going to put a figure on it, but it's probably more about the scope of what's asked for. And there are architectural practices who will pitch for a project and it might, even an expression of interest is a form of competition if you think about it. But an expression of interest will just ask you for your credentials, your background, and they might ask for a statement of how would you approach our design problem. And then you've got to analyze it through words, which is kind of not the way we think. You know, we all think visually, we think in terms of diagrams, we think in terms of imagery and concepts. And a lot of architects just like to pick up the pen and do a bit of a sketch and say, this is what I would think about on your site. So an example of perhaps a design-led small-scale competition might be, with your expression of interest, you might ask for one A3 page, perhaps, with here's the fundamentals of our brief, how would you approach it? And what you might ask is for just something to stimulate the client to say, actually, I really like these guys, but it's more than words. And so that would be what I would always do is encourage, if that was done by local government, for argument's sake, I would also always encourage local government to say, okay, well, if you're going to ask for an A3 submission of an initial response to the site or the context or how you might approach our project, then let's put a few thousand dollars on that uh, submission so that in fact, you might invite 10 players and you might invite them to give you a few, you know, there might be a few thousand dollars attached to an idea. That is completely different to pitching for Federation Square or Flinders Street Station or the National Gallery where you've actually got a very comprehensive brief and you're asking a design team to analyze the brief. It's very technical, very functional, and it has to work. It has to convince the jury that it will work as a building going forward. So that kind of time that's put into those sorts of competitions needs a very reasonable payment 
to be able to get the submissions to a standard where they can be judged against the brief or against the program or against the functional requirements of the client. So they're, they're substantial competitions that do need payment. And I believe that the way that Sydney runs quite a lot of competitions, they have a, a model in the city of Sydney called the Design Excellence Model. And they, within private projects, they encourage the concept of competitions. They're limited, they're invited once again, but each of the invited organisations is pitching a design and the design is what wins the project at the end of the day. And there is a a fee attached to each of those submissions, as there should be. So it's really about being compensated fairly for the work that you're putting into it. Yeah, I think so. And you should never ask. I think it's one of those difficulties, again, as I say, that some architects like to put in even a response to a, a tender that might be advertised widely. Some do like to include some kind of conceptual proposition. It's a little bit discouraged, really, because we need to judge projects from a level playing field. And it's hard when an architect decides to commit to something. But then that said, it's not always a successful thing to put something down on paper anyway, because you're almost jumping to a conclusion and saying, this is what I would do. And that's not quite what the client is necessarily after. So it doesn't always lift the proposition into a different realm anyway. And the main thing really is when one judges who should win a competition or win an EOI or win a design competition and the different scales of competition really that some projects are extraordinarily complicated and have a very complex and multifaceted brief. And one of the fundamental things about those sorts of projects is they need to have a design that can be turned. I mean, the interesting thing about any competition design is it's never going to be the building that you end up with because the architect has had no contact with the client, there's been no feedback loop, and they're pitching something that they're just hoping will resonate with a jury. And then starts the very, very long process of getting it right after that. And so that process of getting it right will by its nature change what the uh, winning competition looks like, the way it uh, sits on its site potentially. If you look at the final Federation Square that Melbourne got, it's quite different to the competition entry, but the essence of it is the same. And so it's a matter of during that process of turning it into a real building, a real project, a real landscape. It's a matter of hanging on to the concept and the architectural language and the vision that was embedded in the competition winning project. But it's a very long process. So part of a jury's decision making and embedded in their, perhaps their points of judgment, can this concept be turned into the building that we're looking for? And obviously some projects are more difficult than others. And so attached to the degree of difficulty is also the skill level of the team that's won the competition. And that's where sometimes for younger and more inexperienced architects, it can be difficult to step into the 
post-competition process of turning this into a real building. You know, that really can be quite a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And with uh, the competition, if you're looking at like an experienced firm versus a less experienced firm, could you just explain like what a blind competition is and the benefits that it might have for a less experienced firm? I would call, I'm not sure if that's quite the right term for it, but I I think it's generally known as a blind competition where, or the two envelope submission or something where the name of the practice or the name of the person, the design team that submits is not there on the competition entry so that the jury judges the entries purely based on the criteria that they have been tasked to assess. And that is basically design-led. And it might talk, you might be looking for a an exciting vision. You might be looking for a great fit into the context of the the locale where the particular project is uh, located. You might be looking for incredibly fantastic imagery of some sort and or you might be looking for something that looks like it's the right scale, the right fit, the right, perhaps even the right, I think the only word I can think of is flavor for that particular project type. All of those things are really important. So if it's judged without any knowledge of who the hand of the author is, it's always an interesting process because you are not swayed by the fact that you know this practice and you know what they do and you know they're competent. And so the opportunities that are inherent in that for younger, less experienced practices are that if they've got an idea which is interesting and exciting and potentially a great fit for the project, they've got as much chance of being taken to the next part of the competition as someone with a great deal of experience. So usually a blind competition is judged in two parts and it usually means the first part of the submission is judged with no concept of who the practice is that submitted it. And then there's usually a separate envelope and a point of, and or maybe they're given a number, and the number is then revealed at some stage as being this particular group of people or this practice or this person or this designer who has put this entry together. And actually, that's always fascinating because I know when you're on a jury, you inherently think you know the architectural language of a lot of architects but you certainly know the experienced architects. You certainly don't know the less experienced architects. And every jury that I've been on, there's been some moment where one of the jury members goes, oh, I know who this is. I know whose hand this is. I know who the designers are. And inevitably they're wrong, which I think is always fascinating. So you kind of do your best to judge on all sorts of merits other than the perhaps history of the practice and the knowledge of what they have done in the past. And that's truly very much judging a design on its own merits. There's usually within, after that first stage, and it might be a short list, there's usually a process of analysis of who these people are, who the submitters are, and a judgment as to whether these might be appropriate winners of a competition of the type and complexity or degree of difficulty attached to the particular project. And I think the jury sometimes makes a judgment at that point as to 
Never that that particular submission is out of the competition, but there may be an opportunity to say, you know, we're a bit nervous about this group. Maybe they need a mentor, a more experienced mentor. And so there is always the opportunity to suggest that if there's some nervousness about capability, that it might be recommended that a bit of support is found. So it becomes, you know, a supported submission rather than one that's coming in looking a little bit, perhaps a bit too much of a risk if if they don't look like they've got the capacity or capability to do the project to the, you know, it's a long, a really long process to get to the end of a, an architectural commission. And it does take a lot of commitment, a lot of drive, a lot of focus, and you've got to stay solvent along the way. <laughs> so it sometimes needs help from practices that know the ropes. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense. With the Future Homes competition, because I know that you were really involved and really instrumental in that competition, can you talk a little bit about why the decision was made to run the competition and a little bit of background about what you were hoping the outcomes of the competition would be? One of the interesting things about the whole concept behind the Future Homes competition is the fact that we have a whole lot of what we call the middle ring suburbs in Melbourne and most of Australia's cities have got this same condition where not terribly far from the city centre is a ring of old residential and they're usually on big blocks of land. They're often quite small. In Melbourne particularly, those middle ring suburbs, a lot of them have housing that is, I would call it, well past its use-by date in the sense that it's really in need of maintenance it's kind of reached the end of a lifespan for a building that was never really designed to last terribly long. And we're talking about suburbs that were kind of settled in the, possibly in the 50s and 60s, that type of thing, maybe 40s, 50s, 60s. And some of those suburbs are so well located in terms of public transport and, you know, the means of, they've got great amenity, they've got great parks, they've got great streets but they're not very dense and because they have one house on one very small house often on a very large site and they might have street after street after street of this kind of houses past their what we would call maybe past their use by date and part of the reason those suburbs don't move and don't shift away from that despite the pressures on our city is that Our community is a little nervous about what higher density housing looks like and we have that slight fear of I don't want to live next door to an apartment block. And Melbourne's almost, you know, it's renowned for its high-rise apartment buildings and that's a lot of what we've done over the past decade or so. So our population, I think, is nervous about what density looks like. So our interest in promoting the concept of future homes was a couple of things. One was to remove the word apartments from the idea of a different kind of home and to make sure that the word home was embedded in a concept about higher density occupation of these middle ring suburbs. And the idea really was to say, within the boundaries of what we can do within our current planning schemes, what would happen if we joined two of those large suburban blocks together and instead of getting two houses on those two sites, we get nine homes on those sites or 10 homes. And if that was something that 
was not frightening to the neighbours or to the community or to the neighbourhood, then 10 homes on every two blocks is an incredibly efficient way of densifying our suburbs not actually building in places that need roads or need transport or need bus networks or need tram networks because that all exists. So how do we tap into the existing conditions that we've got? We've got a great public transport system in Melbourne. How do we tap into those existing amenity that even to the the fact that there are libraries, there are parks, there are community centres in these places? So we don't need to build those. That's all in place. So how do we tap into that, but actually densify Melbourne in a way that is making better use of what we've already got, rather than saying we need to keep expanding the boundaries, the edges of the city, of metropolitan city, because we, poor old Melbourne's got no topography and we can just keep going till we hit Adelaide, really. And it's not a very good idea. So how do we contain that? And unless we want to have a hole in those, you know, a future hole, like one of those donut cities where you don't have decent development in that middle ring, how do we actually improve on our current condition, densify the city in a slightly quieter way than what the central city is doing, a little bit more small scale, a bit more amenable to neighbours, and to take away that fear of what higher density homes might look like. So that was what was behind it. How do we change potentially the concept of what higher density homes might look like within an existing suburb? So our idea was if we got several examples, we might be able to promote the concept of some pilot projects or working with government departments that own land. And you get a few of these built and the neighbours start looking at them and saying, you know, these are okay. This is not what I thought denser homes looked like. There's actually gardens and there's real trees and there's privacy and they're good looking and you've got neighbours so there's a bit of a community there as well. So it's a bit of a promotional exercise on what, which is why we called it Future Homes, obviously, what a different kind of home might look like within our existing suburbs. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. It is definitely something that's very necessary in the future of the cities. And I think the use of the word homes instead of housing is really strong as well in underpinning the reason behind the competition and benchmarking livability, sustainability in these homes. With the uh, submissions that you got, going back to what we've been talking about, when you run a competition, you get all of these diverse solutions. Can you talk a little bit about the way that the competition, like sort of the way that the jury assessed the submissions, the shortlisted entries, and if there was anything particularly that was completely different to what you were expecting, or did anyone take any creative liberties that you were really got behind? I'd say there weren't any creative liberties because it was a very real problem. And so we set some very real parameters, which included the concept that in fact, this could be built. So all of the entries had to deal with current planning requirements as far as car parking went, as far as setbacks from boundaries, overlooking, overshadowing, all those very, very real constraints that are associated with designing, you know, medium density housing in our suburbs. So no one could take liberties about that really because they would have been not considered because they wouldn't have been viable. And because we were so interested in this being 
potentially a real outcome. We looked very hard at those that were capable of being turned into real outcomes. So, I mean, what was interesting about it is that obviously the problem is the same and everyone worked to the same brief and the same planning parameters and the same site. And what was very interesting about it were the diverse approaches to it. Possibly none of them were unexpected because, you know, there's a history of architects loving to look at uh, living in these kind of medium density environments. So there's a, a great history of this kind of denser housing right across the world. And there are various types. You know, you see the, the single building type where, which is kind of the apartment block type, I suppose. And then there's the cluster type. And then there's the types that are maybe how do you break a building apart and turn it into something other than a singular block, a singular big block on a block of land. So what we did see was various iterations of a similar type. So there were various submissions that showed us a cluster model. There were various that showed us the courtyard model. There were various that showed us the singular block model that you went in that one entry. The cluster model obviously invites a whole lot of entries on the site because everybody has their own front door. The uh, single apartment block model, everybody goes in the same entry and shares that access route. And then there are the, the sort of split models where you might have a grouping of different types. And then there's the townhouse model, the sort of the vertical model where you might have a two-story home with a one-story over the top or one that goes sideways. So all the breakups were really, really interesting on how you put the same program, the same types of apartments, how you break them up across the site, taking all of those planning parameters into account while you do it. So it was really fascinating. Some of the designers chose on the upper level that they would put volume into the upper level, which is a type that we see quite a lot in the UK, where instead of just being three layers of sandwich, the top level gets the roof space. So it becomes a, a slightly bigger volume at the top. And that's a very particular decision to do that in design terms, a particular section through the building. So there were several different types and all done with, you know, a lot of skill. It was great seeing the, the variety of the ways that things were approached. We were really delighted with the focus on landscape as well, because part of the proposition was to make sure we don't lose the incredible leafy nature of our neighborhoods. You know, that's one of the biggest concerns in our suburbs is we've got such great landscape. We've got great trees. We've got deep planting. We've got a lot of shade. And one of the concepts behind this as a type was make sure we don't just drop a basement over the whole site because if you cut a basement over the whole site, you lose any capacity for planting a decent tree. So how do you avoid that in this kind of model that might change the nature of the home but not completely change the nature of the neighborhood. There's a fine line between the two and how do you mitigate those two almost fighting concerns in some ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like everyone sort of came with their own design approach to what a future home could be, even with the really thorough parameters and briefs. So that's, I think, a really strong outcome for the competition. Can you talk a little bit about the reason that you ran the student competition, what the student competition was, and sort of the decision to run that in line with the industry competition? Well, we spoke to the universities who, like us, know that they're the keepers, if you like, of the future architects and the future thinkers. And one of the great things about architectural students is they love to think about this challenge in housing. And it's just absolutely embedded really in the discussions and the learning and the teaching that goes on in the universities. So it was seen by several of the universities as a really exciting proposition to put as a studio challenge to some of the studios. And the students were given a slightly less real brief. So they were not required, for instance, to attend to the type of car parking that the real project had to attend to. So we reduced the parameters slightly to perhaps not make it too complex because juggling all of those different realities can be a bit distracting from actually coming up with a decent design. But the great challenge for the students was that they bring their, the concept of perhaps of a particular generational approach to these, this idea of a new home. And the other thing that is quite interesting about it, it was right in the time of COVID where probably the kids were working from home, all the university students were working from home from their shared houses and were probably being made aware of how difficult it is to work from home if you're sharing a house with the four others, if you're all shouting into a computer screen. What does that mean for a shared household? So it was interesting to see this concept of even potentially for individuals sharing a home and the need for study space within the home, the need for a particular type of communal activity in the student homes as well, because I think what the younger architects brought to it was a slightly less conventional approach to the idea of a family home. And I think that's always great. Yeah, really good explanation. And I think just to wrap it up, we'd really like to talk about the OVGA's architecture competition guidelines. We put those competition guidelines out because we felt there weren't enough architectural competitions being seen as an acceptable procurement method in Australia. And, you know, we always look enthusiastically to what's going on internationally. And it just feels like a lot of great projects are being born out of the competition process internationally. It's a great learning environment or a platform for young practices to start getting experience in projects that they have not necessarily done before, which is also great for the profession because you are bringing along your younger practices and giving them experience, which it's really hard to get in Australia. It's hard to step into a project type that you haven't done before. It's hard to convince, you know, someone who's judging an expression of interest. It's hard to convince as a young architect that actually I'm a really good architect and I'm capable of listening to you as a client. And I reckon we can work together to come to a really good outcome. Sometimes that's hard to convince a client that they shouldn't go to the team that they think has done, already done 60 libraries. So therefore there'll be no problem with that. And it's seen as a bit of a, a risk perhaps. So I think 
the culture of design and support for design that exists internationally, it doesn't exist here. And we would love to see that shift in some way. So our ambition really behind publishing some competition guidelines and accepting there are lots of different types of competition is to, or particularly to encourage government to see competitions as an appropriate and as a potentially exciting and as a really valid way of finding, identifying potentially something that they wouldn't have otherwise found because there's a lot of advantages in using the competition process rather than relying on what you know. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's a really, really strong explanation of the guidelines. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of our podcast, Jill. We really, I'm going to turn my camera back on, actually. Is that a camera? Uh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit hard. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm conscious that you have to go, but thank you so much for being part of this. Have a good day. Fantastic. See you later. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest in this episode, Jill Garner from the Office of the Victorian Government Architect. We're very grateful for your time and we can't wait to see your future projects and the competitions you create for the government in the future. We'd also like to thank Cassia Ward from Imagine in Victoria for organising and moderating the interview. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Cassia Ward, Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.